Welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Season 4 of the Performance Nutrition Podcast, connecting you with world-leading experts in performance nutrition to take your nutrition game to the next level. It is Super Bowl week, folks, and honored today to have my guest, Mr. John Wellborn, former NFL offensive lineman who played nine seasons in the NFL, went to three NFC Championship games with the Philadelphia Eagles, where he played under coach Andy Reid, who's coaching the Kansas City Chiefs in this upcoming Super Bowl this Sunday. In this episode, John shares his insights into his career whilst he was playing, his nutrition strategy while he was in the league, which was actually heavily influenced by the legendary Dr. Mauro Di Pasquale, and how he was a little bit ahead of the curve in that respect. He talks about how it impacted his performance, his ability to recover, and also shares some insights about head trauma and concussions. And actually talks openly about how the definition really changed dramatically even during his time in the league. John also shares what he did to support better brain health. And of course, we're going to dive into his fantastic work he does today in coaching professional athletes, as well as lecturing around the world on performance and nutrition. You can find the links and the podcast summary in the show notes at performancenutritionpodcast.com. And of course, if you are looking for more football or NFL-related content, then you can definitely binge listen to some great episodes here in the lead-up to the Super Bowl this week. You can start with Season 1, Episode 37, with the sprint coach, Mr. Derek Hansen, who has worked with the Kansas City Chiefs as a consultant in past seasons and this season. The episode is Building Speed, Sprinting, and High Performance. Season 2, Episode 19, with Dr. Michael Lewis, MD on the use of high-dose omega-3 and CBD oil for concussions. Season 2, episode 31 with Dr. Ross Anderson, who worked with the Philadelphia Eagles back in the 80s and 90s on seasonal changes in body composition in collegiate football players. We also have Dr. Eric Trexler, PhD, season 3, episode 17, fat-free mass index and key micronutrients in professional football players. And of course, Mr. Pratik Patel, Season 3, Episode 28, the New York Giants Director of Performance Nutrition talks preseason fueling and return to play nutrition in the NFL. Fantastic. Well, listen, before we kick things off, a quick shout out to Alexa Vasco of the Canadian National Women's Hockey Team. Uh, Great to hear Peak has had such a positive influence on your nutrition and performance and played some sort of role in, in the team. Really appreciate you sharing. For others, if you have any peak success stories or anecdotes to share, definitely reach out on social media at Dr. Bubs, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or send me a note. Much, much appreciated. Awesome. Let's do this. Season four, episode two with Mr. John Wellborn. Enjoy. John, thanks so much for taking the time today. Oh, thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, uh, you know, listen, I'd love to kick things off here today by going back to your rookie year when you came into the NFL, 1999 with the Philadelphia Eagles. 
you know, what was it like that transition for you from college to the pros, not only on the physical side, but maybe more importantly on the mental side? Um, so I played, uh, I played football at UC Berkeley and I was fortunate enough to graduate in four years and I worked on my master's in my fifth year. And, uh, when I got drafted, I was drafted the second pick in the fourth round and I came in and ended up starting as a rookie. And I will tell you that the transition between high school and college was dramatically more difficult and just such a bigger hoop, uh, to, to jump through than going from the NFL to college or sorry, going from college to the NFL, you know, you're, uh, I mean, when I was 18 years old, I was, you know, six, four, 265 pounds and, you know, didn't even own a razor. And by the time I left college, <laughs> I had grown two inches and, you know, I was six, six and, uh, you know, weighed, you know, over 300 pounds and, uh, you know, ended up, you know, shaving then. So I think just like the maturation process takes time. And then when I got to the NFL, uh, I came in and there was a bunch of older guys in front of me and I went in and played pretty well. And when I came back uh, after minicamp, they had cut all those old guys and I was the starter. So uh, the transition really wasn't that big um, going from college to the NFL as it was from, you know, really high school to college. So um, and then uh, when I was in college, um, I was a rhetoric major like in English philosophy, but I uh, wanted a minor and I was really interested in nutrition Cool. and uh, ended up not being able to get the minor because all of the labs uh, were in the afternoon when I had football practice. So I took uh, all the classes that I needed for it other than the labs. And so I had a, I thought I had a pretty solid foundation of nutrition going in. And, uh, it wasn't until I got, uh, to the NFL in my rookie year, I got hooked up with a supplement deal. Um, I met a guy named Mauro De Pasquale, who was a doctor out of uh, Canada. Yeah, there you, you go. Probably know. So, sure. So Mara hooked me up with my first supplement deal and uh, we got on the phone. He sent me his book, which I read. And I remember reading his uh, anabolic and metabolic diet books and thinking that everything that I had just learned the previous four years in college based off of what I was reading there was completely wrong. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he was, you know, I mean, he's really the father of the carb cycling and the cyclical ketogenic diets. And he was doing that. And it's hilarious to see it now because it's all just variations of what he did. And he, uh, you know. Like we had a pretty, pretty like decent amount of conversations about it. And it took a little bit of convincing on my part because naturally I'm just, uh, um, you know, I'm like a conscientious objector, like I'll go along, but like, you got to convince me a little bit and, uh, you know, and then, you know, having a background in nutrition and, you know, and then obviously a degree in rhetoric, which was like a analytical kind of a pre-law degree. Um, you know, there was just a lot of questions and finally I got to, you know, this kind of fork in the road and. I always have this idea in my mind that I'm always trying to be a white belt. I always want to be a beginner. Yeah. And I wrote a blog post about this, about like, you know, if you're, if you're always the guru in the room, go find a new room. So I, I just kind of like said, Hey, uh, you know, write it out for me. What do you think I should do? I'll follow it to a T. And, uh, that was when I really kind of dove in and, you know, started really looking at like, you know, protein as, uh, you know, as probably the one macronutrient for body composition and recovery and for strength. And then looking at how we cycled carbohydrates and fats and really doing like a, you know, I think I was like 24, maybe 30 days we did on the keto, um, with no carb. And then like, I remember those, we started doing those carb refeeds. And at the end of that, let me see, that was probably in September. And then by, I would say January or February or March, um, I had pretty much like reconfigured my body, if you could say that. I was probably, 
you know, 310, 312 pounds, you know, 20% body fat, pretty, you know, normal, what you'd expect to see from an offensive lineman coming yeah. out of college. And then uh, in that second year, all of a sudden I was, you know, 306 pounds, except I was 10% body fat. And I was, at the time, I was the only guy that they'd ever tested over 300 pounds that was, that was 10% in the, or I was less than 10% in the bod, in the bod pod. So, I mean, that's, uh, that's saying something for sure. And, you know, Going back to that time, then the nutrition support and focus in the NFL at that time, you know, that must have obviously been pretty different from what the general recommendations were for the rest of the guys. You no, know, in terms of your first year being a lineman, um, you, can you talk a little bit about that and how you know yeah, if there was he, any conflicting, uh, you know, with with staff or whatnot in, in terms of the path you were taking? No, we didn't really get. There really wasn't any nutrition recommendations. We didn't have a dietitian. We obviously had strength coaches. Um, you know, who were more, you know, Penn State high, you know, hit guys, which was yep. kind of interesting for me because I came from a, you know, pretty classical power lifting background. But then uh, the, my strength coach in college was a guy named Todd Rice, who was uh, as far as you could go in terms of like Olympic lifting. So for the last three years of college, all I did was front, front squat, snatch, clean and jerk. And nice. we did plyos and sprinted. Yep. So it was a really different environment. And, uh, you know, all the stuff that I really knew about diet, you know, obviously learning in the class was, you know, coming out of like Flex magazine, you know, I was like, oh, I got to eat 18 chicken breasts a day. And I was eating, you know, white rice and, you know, and uh, black beans. Yep. And, uh, you know, um, then I remember to like make up my calories because I had a certain caloric load that I had to hit. I remember I'd do like shots of olive oil. So, you know, staying with like nice. monounsaturated fats because, you know, you can't have too much saturated fat, which you know, it was pretty interesting thinking back about uh, the nutrition I learned in college. There was this idea that like saturated fat was like the, uh, you know, the variable boogeyman who's going to steal your wallet, you know, get your girlfriend pregnant and like, you know, burn your house down. There you go. And uh, it was really fascinating when I when I met Morrow and read all of his books and then went back. And, you know, this is kind of like, I'd say, um, pre you know, archaic internet where, you know, I ended up having to go to the library, which is what I had done in college, you know, and, uh, you know, microfish and you know, you're going through this and yeah. I went back and I pulled a bunch of research and, uh, you know, there was a bunch of correlations with low blood serum cholesterol levels and suicide and impotence and male, you know, and like, you know, low muscle mass. And, you know, even though our bodies produce more saturated fat in a single day than we could ever consume, diets of low saturated fat don't bode well for people that want to have healthy androgen profiles. And so, you know, seeing what Mara was talking about, you know, with, hey, we're going to eat a ton of red meat and there's going to be saturated fat. And like the saturated fat is really going to be this catalyst and the amount of volume and everything that we're doing for training. And, you know, it was really interesting just because they didn't get into that stuff. And, you know, it was like, you know, hey, we're going to eat a ton of, you know, cruciferous vegetables. And it just like I think back about how far ahead he was, because it's, yes, you know, with nutrition, it's so cyclical. Like uh, I remember in 2008, 2009, 2010, maybe it was 2009, I met Rob Wolf, who wrote the paleo diet. And yeah. he started talking to me about this thing called the paleo diet. And he's going through. I'm like, you realize that's how I've eaten my, you know my entire NFL career. And I was like, you know, this is, I met this guy named Mara de Pasquale and we started talking and Rob's head like exploded. And he's like, dude, you were, you know, and, uh, you know, and I was pretty lucky. I've always counted this as kind of maybe just, uh, I don't know, the Forrest Gump, uh, you know, paradox where, uh, just, just out of proximity and just luck, there were a lot of things that fell into play to allow me to play in the NFL. Like, um, Melder brothers were all big, strong dudes and they played college football 
And when I was nice. about 14 years old, I was pretty skinny, uh, you know, pretty thin. And there was an old power lifter down the road who used to lift weights in his garage. And he invited me to come lift weights. And he turned out to be like the U.S. powerlifting uh, coach. And he was like this world-class powerlifter. Incredible. And, yeah. And I was lucky. I trained in his garage again in George Zangus. He invented uh, the super suits and the wraps and had this company called Marathon Nutrition. So like – I'm like, it's like 1989, 1990, and he's giving us uh, boxes of this stuff called creatine. And it was like, hey, I want you to take this creatine. So I always joke that I'm the, like, the longest continuous creatine user on the planet since yeah, 1990. Case study right there. Yeah, and yeah. so when people were talking about you know creatine being this bad thing, I'm like, dude, I got like, what's that, like 30, over 30 years of taking creatine every single day without any issues. So, And now all of a sudden the research comes out that it improves ATP and brain function and like every – you know, human on the planet should take it. And I'm like, man, I've been saying that for 30 years. So yeah, it's, uh, definitely yeah, but, really interesting. I mean, you hit on some points there around, you know, things like saturated fat intake, even today is obviously hotly debated in academic circles, whether we go above or below 10%. And, you know, ironic because places like Spain where they consume the most are soon to be the longest living folks in the world. And, you know, you talk about De Pasquale as well, you know, you know, steaks and whatnot. I mean, people even fail to realize that things like almonds, you know, hundred grams of almonds has more saturated fat than a steak. And so there's, there's a lot of things that are, you know, sort of go uh, unnoticed in the nutrition circles, as you mentioned there. But if we talk about back to that first year, when you're starting this diet, when the more was given you, you know, obviously you're probably a little bit hesitant at first. Like what were some of the experiences that you had in, in the early days? So it was, it was pretty amazing. Um, you see how, how, like, if I can frame this, it's obviously like it's been a couple years, but uh, I remember Marl sent me the diet, uh, you know, and I was, I, I think I was eating, man, I was probably eating well over 350 grams of protein just from red meat and then supplementing with, you know, uh, olive oil and coconut oil and like whatever else I could. Um, you know, he, he wasn't real big on, uh, on like butter and, and lard and that stuff. It was always this kind of balance of like, you know, Hey, you're getting so much, uh, saturated fat from like, you know, obviously the steaks and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, you know, so let's balance it out with like coconut oil and all and, uh, olive oil. And then I ate a ton of cruciferous vegetables with it. Um, and I felt phenomenal. Um, you know, like I always wonder if, like maybe I'd had some blood sugar issues, you know, excess body fat, you know, and if uh, I just did a talk for the NSCA on metabolic flexibility and I had not to take a little bit of a side turn, but sure. I had this theory a couple of years ago that like metabolic flexibility and the idea of like, you know, being able to test people for metabolic flexibility would help us figure out like what the most optimal diet was. And then after a couple of years of research, I realized that. You know, the, mo the most metabolically flexible people are usually the people that carry the most amount of lean muscle mass and the lowest body fat. So, like, yeah. whatever diet you can to get you there. So, uh, I did that, and I remember Morrow's recommendation was, like, nine days. And he pushed it out to, like, 24, where I was uh, pretty much no carb. And uh, I remember I'd, it was, like, a Friday, and I remember he, like, emailed me or, or we talked or something, and he's like, hey, tomorrow, after you, I want you to get up in the morning, I want you to go bang some heavy weights, and then I want you to come home, I don't want you to eat anything for a couple hours, like, you know, get, like, a good fast in, and then find some Italian restaurant, I want you to go, and I want you to eat uh, as, like, you know, carbs, like, I want you to eat pasta, bread. Go for it, right? Like, yeah, like, I want you to go, go out and, and like, eat till you're full. And I was like, oh, Okay. So I went to this Italian spot. I lived over in Center City and over in Rittenhouse. There was this Italian spot I went to. 
I sat down and I like started ordering and the lady's like, you know, are you waiting on anybody? And I was like, no, this is for me. She was like, Oh Jesus. And so <laughs> comes over, brings like this huge pizza, <laughs> probably like easily like two pounds of pasta, meatballs, the whole nines. And I sit down and, um, start just like eating. And as I was eating, like I, it was like a, um, like a bottomless pit almost. And I'm, I'm really like a crappy big eater, like, uh, you know, Luke and some of the guys like Luke who works for me has like that FTO gene where like he can like swallow an obscene amount of food for me. Like I, like when my stomach hits the limit, like I feel uncomfortable and just want to go home. So like I tend to always eat uh, one bite hungry, not one bite full. Yeah. And, um, but to try to be a big dude, that means I just had to eat a lot more often so uh, as I sit down, I, I start crushing it and like, I eat like two, three pounds of pasta. I eat this massive, like large pizza. I ate breadsticks. Like I, I crushed it. And I remember as I was eating the pasta, uh, I started sweating so bad that I was like dripping sweat in the food, which is pretty disgusting. <laughs> and like, as the lady comes over, I remember the waitress comes over and she's like, are you okay? I'm like, why? She's like, well, you're sweating so bad, you know? And like, she's trying to talk to me and I'm like, I'm doing this diet and I'm carb, uh, uh, I'm carb loading. And she like looked at me like I had three heads and, uh, as long as you're okay. <laughs> she, she's like, don't stroke out and die. Yeah. Uh, so I, I walk out of that place and I was like about a three or four block walk. And I remember like just being like, man, I feel like pretty good. And I remember went home and all of a sudden, like 30 minutes later, it was like a ninja blow dart. Like somebody roofied me. I was just so tired. I like went right to sleep probably about eight 30. And I woke up the next morning, let's say at like five or six, I remember I went to the bathroom and I remember I had like a vein in my ab and I was like, holy shit, I look like dramatically leaner than I was the night before. And I remember hitting up doc and telling him and he's like, that's good. Um, you know, he goes, what I want you to do is, uh, I want you to eat carbs over the course of these two days. But after every meal, I want you to kind of take a look. And if you still look pretty lean and vascular, keep eating. If you start to bloat out or you start to look like a little more full where you kind of look smooth, stop the carbs. You're done. And then we'll kind of go back. And so he really coached me on it. And I'm not kidding you. Like I it like remodeled my body like to uh, um, I always tell people that the person you see today uh, like all that foundational work and everything I had, like it just, it remodeled me. And I remember I showed up that next, you know, when I came in for that second year, people like were, were like, didn't even recognize me. And, uh, they were like, asked me what I did. And I'm like, dude, I've been, I've been really hammering my diet. I've been training. The training's been really good. And, uh, you know, I obviously figured out that I was a better player at about 305, 306. And I was at about 310, 315, 320 where they wanted me to play. Yeah. And that excess fat didn't help me. And, uh, I just recovered better. I felt better. Uh, I moved more efficiently and just, you know, and, and that was really, uh, like opened my eyes to not only nutrition, but then the next piece of that was, uh, I met a guy named Tom Inkledon, uh, who had a company out in Arizona called human performance specialists. And Tom had worked with a bunch of professional athletes and we just started getting regular blood work done. And through that blood work is where I really started kind of dialing in like uh, micronutrient deficiencies, you know, as you go back and I'm sure, you know, from all the pathways, like your body doesn't produce testosterone. If you're, you know, absent of zinc, magnesium, iron, selenium, copper, and just getting some micronutrient testing done and seeing like, Hey, you're deficient here. And then figuring out how to do that was, uh, was also very, very beneficial for me. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating when you talk about just the being able to play better at 305 leaner um less you know percent fat 
than typically the recommendations. You know, I mean, O-Lyman, as you know, I mean, most of the guys in your team were probably, you know, that recommended 320, 325, and of course, carrying more abdominal fat and visceral fat, which obviously is more pro-inflammatory and, and, you know, finding where that middle ground is of, wait a minute, this is that pro-inflammatory environment is going to start impairing things like the recovery piece and maybe how your joints feel. So, you know, as you were going through this from season on season, because you were obviously ahead of the curve here, you know, did you start to notice more offensive linemen starting to shift their diet? And, and, and you know, even today, I mean, when you look at the NFL, what, what, no. you know, what do you see in terms of it still, still no, seems like it's, no. uh, you know, uh, yeah, no, uh, um, uh, I think, um, I've seen a few guys that, uh, are in good shape, but I, and I'm not saying this to toot my own horn, but like, uh, consistently and rarely saw another offensive lineman that was in as good a shape as I was in. And I just don't think that they understood the training the way that I did. And they didn't really monitor their calories. Like I'll tell you this, I fought tooth and nail against the idea of developing an aerobic base. Uh, I figured if I lifted weights and I sprinted and I ran hard and I was, you know, real strong on my glycolytic phase, yeah. the anabolic or the aerobic phase would take over. Um, you know, and then I figured the air of my ways. And so, uh, you know, looking at, you know, increasing metabolic or, um, um, you know, mitochondrial density through developing a larger aerobic base and then, you know, obviously lifting heavy weights. And I was fortunate when I started lifting weights, uh, the old man I, I referenced earlier, George Zangus, his good friend was a guy named uh, Dr. Fred Hatfield, Dr. Squat. And he would talk about his good friend, Fred Hatfield, and compensatory acceleration, which is as mechanical advantage increases, so does the speed. So, like, when I lifted weights, we would use compensatory acceleration. And I remember the old man would talk about, like, I want you to move the weights violently. I want you to try to break the barbells. And so everything I did, you know, from the time I was 14 in terms of lifting weights, uh, was trying to move every weight regardless of what was on the bar with maximal intensity and maximal intent and, and uh, speed. And uh, that training, I think, uh, really set like, you know, if you want to say like set the metabolic pathways or really set just a lot of things in play where uh, I felt like, you know, my ability to generate force was dramatically better. And so that's what I was saying, like kind of what I joke and call the Forrest Gump uh, you know, conundrum where I just had some really interesting people in my life early on that kind of set these things in, in play. But I would talk constantly with other offensive linemen and uh, other players about what I was doing nutritionally. And I just, I sometimes think, man, like it's called the curse of the gifted that like, you know, the better you are, the easier things are, the less I think people have to really buckle down and work. Like if you, if you just got up and every day you were the fastest, biggest, the strongest, Mm -hmm. then, what, what does it do? And I think for me, uh, I've always felt like I had to work harder than other people and I had to explore every avenue. And the nutrition piece was something I was naturally interested in. And, um, you know, when I looked at Marl's diet or when Marl presented his diet, I'm like, I really like to eat red meat. I'm like, this isn't a, this isn't a stretch for me. And, uh, you know, so it, it yeah. tended to work really well. But what was interesting was, um, you know, it just kind of taught me, uh, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, cause I think coming out of that college environment, there was this idea of like, I remember them being like, you know, if you don't eat carbs, you'll die. You know, like, Definitely. like there was there, I mean, and, and that was a prevailing idea. And I remember looking at like, you know, the Krebs cycle and, and if there's not carbohydrate in this, you can't, prefer, you know, and then we real, and then when I met Morrow and I really started looking at some of the ketogenic stuff, um, I realized that, you know, the body is super adaptable and your ability to be able to transition between you know, fat for 
you know, uh, um, you know, low level versus carbohydrate for high level. And really that, that kind of seamless transition, which we understand now I call metabolic flexibility. Uh, that's really the marker for health and performance and strength and all these other key factors. And my ability to kind of switch between those is, uh, you know, predicated not only on, you know, body fat and aerobics, aerobic base and strength and health and all this, but that it's an indicator of like longevity. And, um, uh, so definitely. Like, you know, that 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 was very beneficial for me. Yeah, between the aerobic base and the strength component, I mean, that's definitely some great markers for longevity. And of course, being lean around the midsection, we talked about that. Um, and you know, being an offensive lineman obviously plays like last what three seconds, five seconds, maybe a little bit longer sometimes. I mean, that's yeah, the perfect it's, environment. It's, yeah, it's five to seven seconds. Five to seven seconds, right? So you know, if you're working with elite football players, professional football players now, offensive linemen in particular around this nutrition supplementation piece, you know, what are some of the suggestions, recommendations, tips that you're giving your athletes? Um, what I really do is I base everything around protein. So um, I like, unless somebody's going to eat an adequate amount of protein, and for me, that's at minimum of one gram of protein per pound of body weight. Like if I can get people eating at least one gram of protein per pound of body weight, we can start to play with the carbohydrates and the, and the fats really based on taste. Uh, I found that like, um, for me when I was younger and I know this is kind of interesting, um, I handled saturated fat much better. Like I could eat a huge amount of saturated fat. And now that I'm, you know, in my early forties, uh, I tend to balance and actually, you know, I'm a little lower on the saturated fat and tend to eat a little bit more carb. And I, I just wonder if it's because my training volume isn't as high or maybe I'm, you know, whatever it is, but I just like my blood work didn't look as good is when my saturated fat was high compared to when I was younger. And the thing that I'm really pretty lucky about is I started getting blood work done two, three, four times a year when I was in my like 24 years old. So I have like 18, 19 years of like pretty continuous blood work so I can look at trends over time. Yeah, that's terrific. I mean, that's definitely and, when it really helps. Well, yeah, I mean, blood work is, uh, is a snapshot of that moment in time. And, uh, you know, one, one snapshot doesn't show, but when I can show like, Hey, here's, you know, 40 tests over, you know, 20, you know, 18, you know, years, then I can start to see trends. And that's really helpful for me in terms of like, you know, Hey, if I make it a, a, a twist or a change, or if I do something, I can kind of see it in real time. And so that's always been very beneficial for me. Yeah. But, uh, oh, oh, so, so let me get back to that. I want to put a tangent, but uh, no worries. yeah, so I, I base everything around protein. And then, um, really for me, uh, I tend to like, I had this theory, uh, I, you know, I worked as a, or I still do. I work as a contractor for Naval Special Warfare and I go in and teach uh, performance for the SEAL teams. Um, we work with the guys on the East coast and development group and, and, uh, some of the real tier one operators. And, um, the one thing I really started kind of focusing on is like, how do I make people bulletproof? And what I mean bulletproof, like, uh, and the, the analogy I give is, you know, everybody's seen obviously Marvel and I'm like, okay, or is it, uh, yeah, I think it's Marvel yeah. with, uh, with Wolverine, uh, you know, Wolverine gets hurt and he heals instantly. Why do you think he heals so fast? What is his genetic mutation that allows him to heal in real time? And they always kind of look at me like a little, you know, stone. I'm like, no idea. I'm like, <laughs> he has highly advanced immune system. So your immune system is is what uh, you know formulates your ability to recover and kind of is the you know really the the tip of the spear in terms of like not only recovering from you know uh, daily stress but everything is based around immune function 
And uh, the window of the immune system is the small intestine. So what I really looked at was like, how do I look at like kind of a, a you know, a diet that avoids kind of things with that are inflammatory within the small intestine and really, you know, kind of can help us become, you know, ramp up immune function and make us more bulletproof. And so that kind of put me into a deep dive of really looking at like, okay, like how does inflammation work and are there foods that are tied to inflammation? And I think, um, you know, 10 years ago I had this huge list and I would kind of recommend. And then the problem that I ran into is, uh, you know, one size doesn't fits all. And, you know, what I react to, you don't react to. And it's mm-hmm. become this really interesting kind of almost game of whack-a-mole where like, hey, here's a bunch of foods that people don't really react to. But, you know, like um, I've seen people that have terrible reactions to gluten and I've seen other people that haven't. Now, is there a performance uh, is there a performance gain for me eating a ton of gluten-based stuff? No. Uh, so is there other carb choices that I can, you know, select other than gluten? Yeah. I've never seen anybody really with any reaction to white rice other than like one dude who, who called, who said, Hey, terrible blood sugar reactions to it. So I tend to kind of look at it and say, all right, like, Hey, like one ingredient, uh, you know, eat real foods. You know, uh, the old man I used to train with Zangus used to say, nobody got strong eating out of a vending machine. Nice. Nice. a pretty good deal, you know, basing it around protein and then kind of adding in the other stuff. But, uh, you know, for supplements, I'm real big. I've still been a big believer and recommend people take creatine. Um, I also read a bunch of studies that talked about, uh, athletes that have a ton of, you know, uh, chronic brain trauma from like concussions or from hitting with their heads tend to be very low in glutamine. So, uh, I usually recommend those guys supplement with glutamine, some form of essential amino acids. And then at the end of the day, like all the other stuff, is really based upon you as an individual. Like I can, you know, and, and, but the problem is, and I'm sure you have seen this way too many times with your athletes, um, athletes tend to get most of their nutrition advice from like what I call like the bro, like, Hey bro, like what are you doing for supplements? And then some guys like, Oh, I took this supplement and I feel really great. You take it and you don't get an effect. And you're like, well, maybe he was low on something and the copper or whatever he was taking made him feel uh, better because he was, you know, micronutrient deficient. You might not be micronutrient deficient, or you might have low-level inflammation that binds up receptor sites that prevents you from absorbing that stuff. So I think that there's some like underlying factors for why things happen. But without some form of testing or something more advanced, it's just kind of like throwing stuff against the wall, see what sticks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely the people who have those insufficiencies or deficiencies. Obviously, the ones that are going to get the most bang for their buck when we start to top those things up whether it's food or supplementation and you know i love the idea of you know setting protein intake first because just as you mentioned i mean not only do you get the the protein that you need to recover and you know as prof Stu phillips says you know put the bricks back in the wall but you know as protein intake goes up so does micronutrient density so you're going to bring yeah. on board more of the selenium the zinc the magnesium all the things that you're looking for in the diet so this is a great place to start and you, you talked about your work with the naval special warfare obviously in your career as a football player i'm not sure how many you know concussions you had or the effects of those obviously brain health you know hot topic these days and i imagine you do some work there as well can you talk a little bit about you know your career and what you experienced and some of the work that you might do today with athletes or with uh, within the military yeah so when i came in the nfl uh they told us that you knew when you get a concussion when you got knocked unconscious 
And then at the end of my NFL career, 10 years later, they, I remember a similar conversation where you know you get a concussion if when you hit, you get any form of disorientation, like you hear a ringing, your eyes go cross-eyed, you feel like you know your bell is rung, anything that, it, that uh, involves a change in the normal state. Talk, about, talk when, about moving the goalposts huh? from the start oh, of the shit. career to the end of the career. Jeez. So yeah, day one, they told me, uh, and they asked me how many concussions I'd had, and I'd only had one because I'd only ever really, you know, got, I took a knee to the head and, you know, you know, basically blacked out for about two seconds. And, um, so I was like, I've only really had one concussion. And then, you know, 10 years later when they redefined it, they asked me how many concussions I had. And I was like, I don't know, 70,000. <laughs> like I, 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 I didn't really know, but I know, um, at the end of my NFL career, uh, I think it was in 2009 uh, when I retired. I was contacted to be to uh, for, by Dr. Amen, who's out at uh, in Newport Beach, uh, about getting into his. Uh, he was doing a study on NFL players for the NFL on brains, and so I went in and um, they did all this cognitive testing, intelligence testing. I mean, they basically put me through like three days of battery of, of tests, did a whole bunch of scans and you know, CT scans, CAT scans, you know, MRIs. They did every scan they could of the brain and the neck. And uh, at the end of three days, I go in and uh, Dr. Amen, you know, sits me down and goes, you know, we got good news and bad news. And I was like, well, I always like the bad news first. And he goes, <laughs> well, the, uh, the part of your brain that's damaged is on your left frontal lobe. And, uh, you know, we can tell based off of all the research that we've done, how long you've played and what position you played. And I was like, great. And he goes, well, we know you have somewhere, you know, uh, anywhere like north of like a hundred career starts, you know, and they were, they, they had a really pretty interesting way of attacking it. And we know that, you know, you pr predominantly played on this side of the line, which is true, but you know, they could go and research this shit the same way too. They could just Google me. Yeah. Um, so the area they talked about was this kind of left side of the, you know, this left frontal cortex. And, uh, you know, they went through and were like, you know, this is the part that your brain's damaged. And, you know, you know, these are the issues associated with it. Like it's, uh, you know, it deals more with like emotion and sympathy and empathy. And they kind of went through this whole deal. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, so I got brain damage, which is kind of an interesting, you know, like people know, but seeing it in real time is a, is a different, different animal. Yeah, for sure. So then I'm like, what's the good news? And he's like, well, all your cognitive testing came back great. He goes, you were the smartest guy we've ever tested. And <laughs> nice. highest IQ, your cognitive, your this, and you know, memory, everything uh, was off the charts. And I was like, uh, and, you know, then my first, my question is like, are you comparing this against everybody or just the NFL guys? And they're like, well, this is in the NFL study. I'm like, well, dude, that's like being like the best looking kid in the, fa in the other class. At least you got a prize, right? Yeah. <laughs> So uh, I left there and I remember I was pretty depressed, like thinking like, oh shit, like, you know, cause uh, the brain's pretty, um, anybody that says they understand the brain, uh, I, I think is, is reaching at best. We, we had a uh, Tara Swart who's uh, wrote a really cool book called the source and mm -hmm. she's got like an, an MD and a PhD in like, um, you know, in like the, the brain and like neurology and just really, really heady. And she was even said, she's like, we are still learning daily about how the brain functions and things that we thought 10 years ago don't exist anymore. And, you know, we got into neuroplasticity, but, um, at the time I kind of had this idea that, you know, if your brain is damaged, like there's really nothing they can do. I mean, there's very few things they can get across the blood brain barrier that they can give you. Uh, you know, like, uh, is there a way to fix this stuff? And, uh, I remember I reached out, I have a, a buddy who's also another Canadian, 
Um, my my mom's from Vancouver, so I recognize the accent. But, oh, nice! I went to UBC. There you go. Oh, did you love okay. Vancouver? Yeah, no, my uh, uh, all my cousins. Yeah, my mom grew up in Vancouver, and all my cousins and family live on the island. And uh, yeah, so it's yeah the uh, but so um, oh so I, yeah, I reached out to my buddy uh, Matt Lalonde, who is a doctor of organic chemistry at Harvard. And I, I like we've just been you know buddies. I help him with training, and he's always forwards me some really amazing research. And I told him, like, man, I got this you know brain issue. I got this damage. And um, is there anything that you've read, or is there any research that you can pull about how to like you know not only manage but deal? Is there a way to fix it? And he he's like, let me work on it. And he hit me back like three days later. And I guess he had his, his uh, team of monkeys pull a whole bunch of like, you know, 10,000 research articles. Yeah. And their idea was that there was some really interesting cognitive improvements for people that had had both acute and chronic brain trauma uh, using ketogenic diets. And, um, you know, so, I, you know, obviously having done a cyclical ketogenic diet, I, I knew a ton about it, but I had never really done a prolonged ketogenic diet. So I... Basically, from that day, I set a, a marker for one year, 365 days that I would uh, eat zero carbohydrate and pretty much ate no carbs, drank no alcohol, um, really just drank like water and, and green tea and uh, ate a keto, you know, very, very strict ketogenic diet. Now, I always ate the I, I, I never really liked the recommendations on the ketogenic diet because the protein content was so low. Mm hmm. So what I did is I backed into my calories, figured out what I wanted to hit in my protein, which was like 0.8 grams per pound of body weight. And then I backed in the fat and then started checking ketones. And I was pretty, I mean, I was pretty deep in the, in ketosis for over 12 months. And, uh, I remember I went and saw Rob Wolf. I remember right at like, like on uh, right around that time. And I was like, man, I'm coming up on my one year. And he's like, well, you know, you want to try some carbs? And I remember we went out and got all these big Japanese sweet potatoes and uh, I remember eating the sweet potatoes and it was like this like warm feeling came over me and I felt like dramatically better. And, uh, and then fast forward probably about a year after that, um, I was, uh, like I said, I was working for Naval Special Warfare as a contractor. A couple of the guys that were on the SEAL teams came up, uh, came up to Newport Beach and where I was living at the time and hit me up because there was another doctor in Newport that was doing research on uh brain patterning and behavior on um elite special forces you know and like a socom like guys that were tier one operators to see if they could put a series of tests in place so that they could pre-screen candidates and like not waste time so they found that there was all these different markers that were very you know were all very unique and, and uh to these individuals that allowed them to do their job and the military figured like instead of bringing in 10,000 people and figuring out the you know the 100 why don't we pre-screen them and figure out the people that have the best chance based off of all these different markers and uh so these guys came up I went over and I thought it was interesting I met the doc and when I explained to him who I was and what I did he's like dude we've been doing this for professional athletes, would you want to get into the in, into the scans in this? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And he scanned my brain, similar kind of what Eamon did, and did not find any uh, damage on my left frontal lobe, on my like left frontal cortex. Wow. So either Dr. Eamon's study was flawed and he was doctoring it, or this guy was, or we legitimately saw uh, the brain heal itself. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's such an incredible space at the moment in terms of you know, the research on the brain and, and what we can do from a nutritional standpoint. And as you mentioned here, I mean, nutritional ketosis being a, a potential vehicle, you know, 
ketones being able to fuel the brain and and even research showing that you know supplemental ketones can get us into yeah. that space without necessarily having to go full keto but that's you know especially having a case study like that of somebody who's been through it i mean that's that's obviously a really powerful thing and you know symptom wise and how you felt did that sort of go along with uh with yeah. the findings yeah it was um it was interesting um about the time i started it i remember uh, a good friend of mine called me on the phone and uh we had a conversation and then i called him the next day and uh we had another conversation and when we got done he's like hey man like um just give you a heads up uh, you know we talked yesterday and i was like yeah i know we talked he's like we just had the same conversation i was like we did he's like yeah he's like do you remember we talked about it? i was like I, I know we talked I, I was like but we had this are you sure he's like yeah dude we had the same conversation and i was like shit that ain't good he's like no that ain't good at all and so uh, and then that same friend, I remember a couple of years later was like, man, I was really nervous that day. And he's like to see, um, the cognitive change and to like, just, you know, see the evolution, uh, of where it's come has been really pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, but I think it's, it's more than that. I think when you, it's kind of like, um, like an osteophyte or, or like a, a bone chip or something, you know, in the joint, it causes a lot of pain and there's dif- discomfort and like, you can't move, and, you know, here the joint gets damaged and then all of a sudden you go in and you remove it. And then all of a sudden the joint is able to move pain free and there's less inflammation in here. So I think like sometimes when you remove the, you know, the stressor, which would be this constant, you know, beating of your head into another individual and then you back it off and, um, you know, and then you figure out, you know, like micronutrient wise, like where you're deficient, you, you know, put some, you know, tools and I, so the ketogenic diet to me is, is really powerful tool. The problem is, is that people aren't using it as a tool. I used it for, to fix something and I think it has its place, but in terms of like living your whole life on a ketogenic diet, um, for a healthy individual, I don't necessarily recommend. And the other thing which kind of blows me away and maybe you could shed light on this for me is, um, why is it that the majority of people that are making dietary and kind of like uh, uh, like nutrient like recommendations um, are usually doing it because they fix some form of pathology, but then people are looking at it and they're trying to extrapolate performance out of this. Like for example, like uh, the carnivore diet has become kind of a hot deal, and all the people that are doing the carnivore diet are feeling how amazing they are. And uh, then you have people like the guys that we work with in Naval Special Warfare, they're like, well, hey, we want to try this carnivore diet. People are doing great. I'm like, okay, if you're so metabolically broken, your gut is so inflamed that the only nutrient that you can consume uh, without distress is red meat, that is a terrible indicator of metabolic flexibility and health because we know that the healthiest people can eat, eat the most diverse diets. So stop trying to extrapolate performance from somebody's, you know, diet fixes to fix their fucking pathology and their sickness. And like, that's the part, you know, with the ketogenic diet, when people ask me like, well, it's a performance diet. And I'm like, um, it was for me at the time when I used it to fix my brain, but I never ate a pure ketogenic diet when I was playing. I, I used a cyclical keto, which allowed me to carb cycle, which was really good at the time for changing body composition. So I used that. But then when we got into season, I ate a more balanced kind of isocaloric diet. And, um, it's just it, it's just really kind of a little frustrating to me that you have people that are purposely creating like these very very narrow guidelines for themselves because they think that it'll lead to some like performance promise land. Yeah, I mean it's a tricky uh, it's a, definitely a tricky space, right? Because everyone doesn't realize the blind spots of uh, you know you see it with 
now it's vegan diets. And of course, a lot of the benefits people get is they stop eating a lot of processed food and junk food. And, you know, so there's a lot of other reasons why people end up getting benefits. And just as you mentioned, I mean, obviously for you, I mean, what a great advantage to have a guy like Morrow in your corner throughout your yeah. career. I mean, it's you know, you're not sort of going at this ad hoc and reading some articles and, and whatnot. So, so that plays a huge role as well. And, you know, just as you mentioned, it's, it's a hard for people to grasp on both sides of the line, actually, you know, that you're going to eat a certain way to perform at elite level and you're going to eat differently if you're, you know, working at a desk nine to five and you're 40 pounds overweight. And, and it's, it's just, you know, it's, it, that idea of tools is a great metaphor because they really are, you know, they're tools and, you know, it sounds like you've obviously used them for, you know, great advantage throughout your career. And, and obviously with recovering from, from things like head trauma, which even today, I mean, for regular folk, we're just working nine to five as well. You know, things like car accidents, falls with, you know, it can really change a life when you're, you know, as you've experienced, you know, you, you can't remember things anymore and, and that type of thing. So, well, uh, the, the, the other one too, and this is just purely observation. I have no research to support this. This is just, um, uh, I've forever, um, through my entire life, I always look for patterns. Like, like patterns is something that's like been like universal for me. And I think it was probably the reason I was a, probably a pretty good football player because when uh, I can watch things enough, I can start to see the patterns. And then you get to the point where you watch film and, you know, you go up and play against a team. And every time they're in the, in this defense or this guy's in this position or the linebacker standing there or the safeties or if we're in this down and distance in the red zone here, we know that they bring and they have tendencies. And I would start to see patterns and I could call things out. I'm like, they're going to blitz here. They're going to do this. And like, I just, you just naturally following patterns. And, uh, it's, uh, like just, see, I put this, it's just interesting with the nutrition, uh, you know, within training that there are some really, really fundamental things that are universal that you can't really avoid. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, like you, like you, you brought up like nutrient density, like eating the most nutrient dense foods, like eating red meat, uh, at the end of the day, there is no substitute. Like, I don't care, you know, the vegans, you know, pea protein, whatever that the, uh, nutrient density of something like an animal based protein is dramatically higher. And there's more just quality things within that than eating this. Now, could you do something else? Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, that's a fix, not what's optimal. So, I mean, I found that like, um, I found that there was a remarkable difference in body composition and physical appearance of people that lifted weights with uh, over 85% of their 1RM who lifted heavier weights than people that didn't. And so a lot of guys in the NFL are, are big, strong dudes, but they don't really lift heavy weights. Like I watched guys who you know were 300 pounds, never put more than 315 on a barbell back squat. Wow. And that, and they, they would do it for, you know, eight, nine, 10 reps and they were good. And then they asked me and they're like, dude, you got like 600 pounds on the bar. And I'm like, yeah, I can squat that for, you know, three, four, five reps. And they were like, why would you squat so heavy? And I'm like, because like, like I had like to gain muscle and to continue to perform, I have to forever be fighting to get stronger. And the day that I all of a sudden I'm like, well, that's good. And I don't ever put more than three, three fifteen on the bar. My body will have accommodation. And like, I always really push the weights and like, Hey, if I could do one more rep, I always fought for one more rep. And there was always this idea that like, Hey, what's like, what's the most optimal rep range. And I remember Arnold said it like the next one, if you can get six, <laughs> try for seven, if you can get seven, it was eight, you know? And I, I, I always kind of, you know, pretendously put bar, uh, weight on the bar, but I also noticed within myself just physically stature wise that training your heavier weights, uh, allowed for not only a more dense muscle, but like everything just 
physically the appearance was different. And when people were like, oh, you stay pretty lean, I'm like, dude, but I also lift heavy weights. You guys don't really lift heavy weights. And when I do lift those heavy weights, I'm trying to break them. And so, you know, and then on at the other one, I ask guys constantly, I'm like, how, how many calories do you eat in a day? No idea. I'm like, that's crazy. That's like you going in the weight room and just having somebody throw weight on and not knowing ever what's on the bar. Like, I, I was real big on like, hey, I'm only going to count protein. Once I get my protein in, I'm just going to eat, you know, like, uh, you know, and kind of supplement it. But like for the most part in the off season, I was super dialed on like, hey, this is how many calories I've had. This is what I'm trying to hit. And then I, you know, got up every morning, weighed myself. I'd get my body fat done and I'd just, you know, do the mirror check and then also know what I was able to do in the weight room. And as long as everything was trending positively, I was headed in the right direction. And uh, it didn't seem like rocket science. And what I found was that uh, people were trying to really make this thing complex where I was like, hey, if you can develop an aerobic base, if you can lift heavy weights and do it with a lot of violent intent and you can eat enough protein and I can get, you know, an inordinate, you know, six, seven, eight hours of sleep. Ah, that's really like the best that I can hope for. The big rocks right there, right? Yeah. And and it's like I uh, like I. I haven't had a chance to read your book and, um, you know, I, I, I usually like if, uh, if I'm going to be on somebody's podcast or we have somebody on ours, I usually like to read their book ahead of time just so I can understand, you know, how it, how, it, you know, the writing and this. And, uh, so I oh, definitely will send you over a copy. No worries. Oh, yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to read it. Um, but it's, uh, it's pretty amazing how like, like the, there's some pretty basic principles for this thing that are hard to ignore. Like, uh, um, you know, the greatest determining factor for longevity is muscle mass. The person that can maintain the most amount of muscle mass, the longest tends to live the longest because how do people, you know, healthy old people, what do they do? They fall, they break a hip, they're bedridden. And all of a sudden that's the end of it. Uh, and so like, you know, as we age, a few things happen, we lose, you know, motor unit recruitment and mitochondrial density. So like, how do you recruit motor units? You got to lift some weights. If you got to build an aerobic base to keep your mitochondrial filled volume up, then we do that. And so, um, these very fundamental basic principles like haven't changed in, you know, uh, millions of years. And I, and like every time I see things like game changers in here and nutrition's approaches and this, and I'm like, it just, it feels like, um, uh, people are trying to add complexity so that they can sell something or doing this because at the end of the day, uh, the simple basic stuff that works is really unsexy and really hard to sell. There you go. Yeah. I mean, being an expert in the fundamentals for sure. And it, it is frustrating when the, you know, the bulk of the evidence just points to all these things that are, as you mentioned, just kind of not so sexy, but it's like, we got to always keep spinning, you know, the shiny new toy at people and sort of confusing them when really they could just put one, you know, brick on top of the next and they, in the, in the long run, they're going to get there pretty quick. So. Yeah. And, and then the other thing is, um, you know, and I, and I blame this on the iPhone generation that everybody wants everything right now. And, uh, you know, like I was work, like I, I have a nutrition, like I'll, I'll take on a, a very small amount of, uh, private clients. Um, like we have a, a ton of distance stuff. Like we have a methodology course where we work with strength coaches and performance coaches that's online and in person, but that's kind of like at arm's distance. And then we have about four to 5,000 athletes a day that we work with remotely through programs, um, that are through, you know, an, an interface, but I work with a few, uh, you know, one-on-one clients. And I got one guy who's, you know, ex football player, let himself go. He's 352 pounds, you know, six, five big dude. And, um, 
it's pretty funny in that, you know, uh, you know, Hey, you know, to lose weight, you're going to have to eat a thousand calories and go to CrossFit or FM four F 45, seven days a week. And he got into this and of course, you know, got down to two sixty and then ballooned back up to three sixty five, and it's been in this yo-yo diet. And like, as I got him into this and I was like, Hey man, like let's get all your blood work done. Let's kind of back it off. Like I'm not interested in like dramatic weight gains. Like if you lost a half a pound to a pound a week, like, over the course of like a year, if we lost 50 pounds and it was sustainable, I'm more than happy than you losing a hundred and then coming back 125. And my, my thing is like, how long does it take to get strong? Like if I asked, uh, if I walked into a gym or if I saw you training and I was like, Hey, um, you know, Hey doc, like how long does it take to get strong? You'd probably look at me and say a lifetime. And how do you ever know you're strong enough? Like nobody's ever happy with where they are. Um, and so like with nutrition, there's this idea of like, hey, I have a start point and a finish point. And when I finish at my goal, then I'll just go back to my own shitty life. And my whole deal is like I'd rather take a year and do this slow and teach you uh, like the fundamentals of this thing so that you can make a life change so that it's just not a, a, a sprint. And um, I think this kind of, you know, instant like, oh, you know, I've been following this program. I've been following this diet for a week and I didn't, get, I didn't see the gains I wanted. Like to me, that's uh, – like, like that's how you sell people that, you know, like it, but it, it, it's not sustainable. And like, um, the analogy and, uh, I'm sure people will, will puke on this, but, uh, <laughs> I, cause I've, I've told it so many times. I, um, years ago, like many, many years ago, uh, I have a, a buddy who's a really big time artist and he was in Japan and he ended up meeting up with these guys who were, um, the traditional samurai sword makers. And their family had been making swords since like the 800s and were like, you know, the oldest sword maker in Japan. And so I, he brought home and he's like, hey, man, I'd like to, I'm going to get one of these swords. I do like, I would love a samurai sword. And so uh, I gave him money and waited 10 years for them to make my sword. <laughs> right. Because they, they make them in a traditional, like they, they harvest the, the, the iron ore uh, from a creek in their backyard. And then they take, I mean, it's the most amazing process, but they only make like two or three swords a year. Incredible. So it's 10 years to make this sword. And then I had to fly to Japan uh, and meet these people. And then they like give it to you in a ceremony. Like they don't mail it. Like this thing is like a national treasure. So I, I get this sword. And uh, before they, we had the ceremony, we were there all day and they showed us the whole process to make the sword. And like where they start from like collecting, like they have this like, like this netting in the back where this huge, huge river is. And they like collect all the iron ore there and then they bring it in and they smelt it and they took us through all the process. And it's like they fold the steel, you know, thousands of times and they hammer and heat and reheat. As I'm seeing this, I'm like, this is, uh, this is the greatest metaphor for training I've ever seen. Like you heat the steel, you hammer it, you let it cool. You come back once it's cool, you heat it back up, you hammer it more. You let it cool and you fold it over and over again. And then like all of those folds become different ridges and different cuts. And then that's what increases the lethality in the cut. And I'm like, so, and then I asked him, I'm like, well, could you, you know, is there a process? Like, could you do this faster? And the guy's like, it takes a certain amount of time to heat the metal. We can only hit it so much until it changes color. And then we have to let it cool. And then we heat it again and there's the process and they're like, you know, if we go faster, it becomes brutal. If we go slower, it doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't take. So there's a cadence for it. I'm like, it's just like training. It's just like nutrition. It's just like all these things that like, if you want to be, you know, the greatest sword in the world and you want to be an elite, like you got to fold the metal, you got to heat it, you got to do all this. And like, you know, you can go buy some $10 blade that was, you know, created in like a day or you can wait 10 years for uh, something that is, you know, only a few people on the planet have. 
And for me, I, I looked at like playing football and what I've done in life is like, this is my opportunity to fold the sword. And, you know, I, I, I've never claimed to invented any of this stuff. And I just am really good about, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants and, you know, telling everybody that like, you know, I just was lucky. Uh, I met a guy like Morrow who really helped me and really started me on this. And, you know, guys like Tom Incladon and, um, you know, all the strength coaches and really people that I've had around me for a lot of years. And then the fact that, uh, you know, being fairly analytical and lying to read and, you know, looking for patterns have just been able to kind of find some universal truths that have been very helpful. Phenomenal, John. This has been a great conversation, man. Loads of terrific insights. I've saved the hardest question here for last. Who's, cool. who's going to win the Super Bowl on Sunday? Uh, I think the Kansas City Chiefs. Nice. I, I think, I think Any, the Chiefs are going to do it. Chiefs are going to do it. Any score predictions or is this a close game, blowout? Uh, I don't know. I, um, you know, the, the last two games the Chiefs have played, they've started slow and they've let people get up on them and then they've come roaring back. Um, and I'll just tell you, I, uh, you know, I obviously played for Andy Reid in Philly and I played in Kansas City. And uh, I was going to say, yeah, just, well, you know, Andy is, uh, you know, went to the Super Bowl. I played in three NFC, cha- three NFC championship games with him. And then I went to Kansas City. And then that fourth one, they won and went to the Super Bowl and lost to the Patriots. Um, so this is his second time back. It's going to be some redemption. And I'm a really that Patrick Mahomes kid, I think, is uh, is pretty phenomenal. I know when um, when I was watching the game, I texted some of my old teammates, like, man, if only we had had this kid. I mean, Trent Green and those guys were good, but, man, this kid's real special. And he just does some really amazing things. And uh, the NFL has really changed. Like, if you watch him out sure. there playing, like, the defense doesn't really want to hit a quarterback in the open field anymore. So because they are, you know, a little apprehensive and playing with kid gloves and not trying to hit him, it allows those guys to do some really amazing things that look like something out of a video game. So um, not that I, I don't think the Niners are good, uh, but I just I think Kansas City is, uh, you know, it, it, it's a long time coming for that franchise. And I just, you know, hope that they can go out and make good on it. Amazing. Chiefs on Sunday. That sounds good. John, appreciate the time. Appreciate all the tremendous insights. You know, where's the best place for people to stay connected with you and keep up with all your fantastic work? Uh, you can, I'm easy to find. You can find me at Power Athlete. Uh, the URL is powerathletehq.com. Uh, if you Google Power Athlete, I usually come up and, you know, johnwellborn.com will take you to my blog. Uh, Talk to me, Johnny, which is really just based off of one of my favorite movies called uh, Rambo's First Blood, which, uh, you know, John Rambo, a.k.a. Talk to me, Johnny. So filmed uh, in BC as well, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and you can find me on social media at, at John Wellborn. So I'm, I'm on Instagram and all that stuff. So I'm pretty easy to find. Amazing. We'll definitely include all those links in the podcast summary. John, appreciate it again, man. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Once again, you can find all the links and the expanded podcast summaries at performancenutritionpodcast.com. And lastly, a big thank you to everyone who picked up a copy of my recently released book, Peak. I got so many fantastic messages from athletes, coaches, nutritionists, sports scientists. Really overwhelming to have played a small role in, in inspiring and connecting folks with experts to really help continue their journey. So massive, massive thank you to everyone. Thank you for the notes and the comments. Keep those coming in. Greatly appreciated. Uh, we did also crack the top 1% of all books sold on Audible. So if you picked up a copy, thank you again. Of course, if you didn't, well, 
Maybe you can help jump on board and see if we can crack the top 100 books on Audible here in 2020. Awesome. To wrap up, if you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs, or you can shout out to us on the new Instagram handle for the podcast, which is at PN underscore podcast on Instagram. That's PN underscore podcast. Thanks again and see everyone next week. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.